welcome back to the Perspectives in History podcast. I'm your host, Willem Connor. Thank you very much for listening, as always. In the previous episode of our series on the Korean War, we covered events from December 1945 to October 1949. In 1945, from December 16th to the 26th, American diplomats met with their Soviet counterparts in Moscow to settle a number of post-war issues. Towards the top of their agenda was the dilemma that was Korea. Towards the end of World War II, American President Franklin Roosevelt privately proposed to Soviet Premier Joseph Stalin that the former Japanese colony should be placed under a multinational joint trusteeship for a period of about five years before the country would be granted its full independence. Stalin tentatively agreed. After Japan's surrender, the peninsula was divided between a Soviet-occupied zone in the north and an American-occupied zone in the south. The agreement that emerged from the Moscow Conference essentially reaffirmed the proposal made by Roosevelt a year prior. While the Moscow Agreement was largely supported in the North, it had disastrous consequences in the South, where the right-wing and moderate nationalists formed a coalition to oppose it. As the new year of 1946 emerged, the South was gripped by popular protest, which the American military government struggled to cope with. Leading the charge against the trusteeship plan was a 70-year-old American-educated politician named Syngman Rhee, who claimed that the proposal was an affront to the dignity of the Korean nation. From the beginning, the American government had struggled to prove the legitimacy of their occupation. The commander of the American Occupation Forces, General John Hodge, recognized an opportunity to win the goodwill of the Korean people by joining Rhee in his opposition to the trusteeship plan. Hodge's decision to go against what American diplomats had agreed to at the Moscow Conference must be understood in the context of the emerging Cold War. Despite having fought together against the Axis powers, relations between the United States and the Soviet Union were deteriorating fast. On March 12, 1947, President Harry Truman put forth for the first time the Truman Doctrine, a geopolitical strategy which aimed to halt the spread of Soviet influence, that is, communism, throughout the world. This would form the basis of American foreign policy for the next several decades. While from a purely economic and military standpoint, maintaining an American presence in Korea did not seem advantageous, the added ideological dimension changed the entire equation. Korea was one of the few places in the world where the Americans had the opportunity to confront the Soviets more or less directly. Many in the American camp saw the contest in Korea as an opportunity to prove the superiority of their political and economic system. American prestige essentially demanded that a solution to the Korean problem be found and fast. With the prospect of compromise with the Soviets out of the question, some began to theorize that American interests might be best served by the creation of a separate, independent, and pro-American government in the South. Many Koreans themselves, Syngman Rhee among them, also came around to this idea. The United Nations would be instrumental in America's last-ditch effort to bring about a peaceful reunification of Korea. In October 1947, a resolution was passed in the UN General Assembly calling for elections to form a Korean government. The Soviets protested this decision as unfair and refused to allow UN observers into the North to facilitate these elections. The proposed elections proceeded in the South regardless, with Syngman Rhee and his party winning in a landslide victory. On August 15, 1948, the Republic of Korea was founded, with Rhee serving as its first president. These events were overshadowed by violence occurring elsewhere in the country. In April of that same year, a massive uprising had broken out on the island of Jeju, off the southern coast of the peninsula. 
tens of thousands of the island's residents, spurred on by communist agitators belonging to the South Korean Workers' Party, rose up in rebellion in the hopes of disrupting the elections in May. The South Korean army brutally suppressed the uprising, and between 14 and 30,000 were killed in the months that followed. Meanwhile, in the North, the General Secretary of the Communist Party, Kim Il-sung, declared the UN-mandated elections in the South to be illegitimate. Separate elections were held in the North in August. Shortly thereafter, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea was declared amidst a backdrop of relative peace and stability when compared to the South. The creation of these two separate regimes with opposing political ideologies, and both with ambitions to reunify the peninsula, set the course for armed conflict between the North and South. Kim had initially hoped that the South Korean government would collapse under the pressures of the Jeju uprising, but when such an outcome eluded them, he began to consider an invasion of the South by the North as the only option. In March 1949, he paid an official state visit to Moscow. There, he hoped to get Stalin's approval for an invasion of South Korea. He reportedly told Stalin, quote, now is the best opportunity for us to take initiative into our own hands. Our armed forces are stronger, and in addition, we will have the support of a powerful guerrilla movement in the South. The population of the South, which despises the pro-American regime, will certainly help us." End quote. Stalin, while he did not disagree with Kim on principle, was still reluctant to sign off on such an action. The continued presence of American forces in the South especially gave him reason to pause. An invasion by the North might very well be the cause for a direct American-Soviet confrontation, which was an eventuality that Stalin wished to avoid. He advised Kim to wait until the South attacked first. Quote, if the adversary has aggressive intentions, then sooner or later it will start the aggression. In response to the attack, you will have a good opportunity to launch a counterattack. Then your action will be understood and supported by everyone. End quote. Kim returned to Pyongyang somewhat disappointed, but not totally defeated. After all, Stalin had not rejected his proposal outright. All he needed was patience. Kim's moment would come soon enough. As the year 1949 came to an end, the ongoing civil war in China was rapidly approaching its conclusion, with the communists under Mao Zedong poised to emerge victorious. The war, which had begun again following the defeat of Japan in 1945, had reached a turning point two years later, when the Communists dealt the Nationalists a series of decisive defeats. The rapidity with which the Nationalist war effort in China collapsed came as a shock to international observers. In mid-1949, Nationalist leader Chiang Kai-shek withdrew to the island of Taiwan, bringing along with him the bulk of his army and the remnants of the Nationalist Chinese government. Then, on October 1st of that year, Mao Zedong proclaimed the foundation of the People's Republic of China in Beijing. The Soviet Union extended its diplomatic recognition to the new regime the following day. Relations between the Soviet and Chinese communists had not always been the most sturdy. During the first phase of the Chinese Civil War, and even as late as January 1949, Stalin had expressed his support of a coalition government in China, and had urged Mao and the communists to cooperate with Generalissimo Chiang. However, the total victory of the communists presented Stalin with a fait accompli. He was forced to recognize his error, stating to senior Chinese communist Liu Shaoqi, quote, The victors are always right. You Chinese comrades are too polite to express your complaints. We know that we have been a hindrance to you and that we have given you cause to complain. We may have given you erroneous advice as a result of lacking understanding of the true situation in your country, end quote. 
Now that he had achieved victory, Mao was willing to let bygones be bygones in the socialist spirit of solidarity. As he explained to Soviet diplomat Anastas Mikoyan, quote, You must lean to one side. To sit on the fence is impossible. In this world, without exception, one leans to the side of imperialism or to the side of socialism. End quote. Moreover, Mao recognized that his country, ravaged by decades of war, would require Soviet economic assistance to recover. With this objective in mind, Mao made a state visit of his own to Moscow in December 1949. On the 16th, Mao and Stalin met face to face for the first time. At this meeting, Mao expressed his desire to have the Soviets abrogate the Treaty of Friendship that Stalin had signed with Chiang Kai-shek as an appendix to the Yalta Accords. At first, Stalin refused on the basis that the terms of the treaty involved other parties, namely the United States and Britain, and that they could not be altered without their consent. Mao was enraged, but opted to bide his time. Stalin was merely playing hardball, and did not meet with Mao again until January 22nd. When Mao once again broached the subject of the 1945 Sino-Soviet Treaty, Stalin was quoted as saying, quote, To hell with it. Once we have taken up the position that the treaties must be changed, we must go all the way. It is true that for us this entails certain inconveniences, and we will have to struggle against the Americans. But we are already reconciled to that." End quote. Stalin's sudden about-face on this particular issue can be explained by the fact that in early January, several Western countries, foremost among them Great Britain, had also officially recognized the People's Republic of China, leading Stalin to fear the possibility that China would, to use Mao's aphorism, lean to the other side. On February 14, 1950, the Sino-Soviet Treaty of Friendship, Alliance, and Mutual Assistance was signed. In North Korea, these developments in China and the Soviet Union had bolstered Kim Il-sung's hopes of fighting and winning a war against the South. According to Kim, quote, The communist victory in China is an important psychological blow to the West. It proves the strength of Asian revolutionaries and shows the weakness of Asian reactionaries and their mentors in the West. End quote. In January 1950, Kim met with Terenty Shtikov, the former commander of the Soviet occupation forces in Korea, who was now serving as the Soviet ambassador to the DPRK. Kim told Shtikov that it was high time to liberate the South. He confessed to him that the issue of reunification was causing him to lose sleep at night. Kim was almost certain that he could accomplish the task before him. After all, the North Korean army was larger, better trained, and better equipped than its southern counterpart. The North Korean army had been preparing for war with the assistance of some 400 Soviet military advisors, as well as about 70,000 ethnic Korean veterans of the Chinese Civil War, who had returned to Korea in 1949 at Mao's behest. The North Koreans had also purchased a large amount of military materiel from the Soviets over the past year, including 150 T-34 heavy tanks, 70 fighter planes, and 60 light bombers. In late March 1950, Kim paid another visit to Moscow to personally ask his permission to proceed with the military operation. At this meeting, Stalin informed Kim that, quote, the international environment has sufficiently changed to permit a more active stance on the reunification of Korea, end quote. This remark primarily referred to the victory of the communists in the Chinese Civil War and the new Sino-Soviet alliance, but also to the fact that the Soviets now possessed an atomic weapon of their own. These factors would likely deter an American intervention in Korea, but Stalin still remained somewhat fearful of the possibility. Kim reassured Stalin that this would not happen. Quote, 
Since the USSR and China are behind Korea and are able to help, the Americans will not risk a big war. Moreover, the attack will be swift and the war will be won in three days. The Americans will not have enough time to even deliberate about an intervention. End quote. Stalin made it clear to Kim that he should not count on direct Soviet intervention in the war. Quote, if you should get kicked in the teeth, I shall not lift a finger. You will have to go to Mao for all the help. End quote. Therefore, Kim went to meet with Mao in May 1950. Kim was supremely confident in his ability to handle this undertaking all on his own, and rather than asking for Mao's assistance directly, he merely informed him of his intentions to reunify Korea. Mao was likewise hesitant to sign on to Kim's proposal for fear of American intervention. Ultimately, other concerns took precedent over this one, namely Mao's desire to export the communist revolution to countries on China's periphery, that is, Korea and Indochina. The DPRK's invasion plans were drawn up and finalized in mid-June 1950. The KPA, or Korean People's Army, as the DPRK's armed forces were called, would initiate hostilities by attacking the strategic Ongjin Peninsula on the western coast of the country. The Ongjin Peninsula was rather remote, cut off from the rest of the south, therefore making it an easy target. After that point, the larger offensive would begin, with KPA units attacking all along the 38th parallel and pushing southwest to Seoul. A crucial component of the North Korean strategy was to lead outside observers to believe that the South Koreans had fired the first shot. Kim and the DPRK did their utmost to maintain this fiction, not only to the outside world, but to their own rank and file as well. In a speech delivered on June 5th, 20 days before the planned start of the invasion, Kim stated, quote, There is every indication that an all-out war instigated by the U.S. imperialists and the Syngman Rhee puppet clique may break out in our country at any moment. If it does, we must take a decisive counteroffensive at once and deliver a deadly blow to our enemy to drive the imperialists out of our territory and to reunify the country. End quote. As historian Sheila Miyoshi Yeager describes it in her book Brothers at War, The Unending Conflict in Korea, quote, The opening shots of the attack in the pre-dawn hours of Saturday, June 25, 1950, surprised few, and yet all were caught unprepared. End quote. When fighting broke out at Angjin, there was no cause to believe that it was going to amount to anything more than a routine border skirmish, similar to several others which had taken place throughout the previous year. In previous months, the North Koreans had made a conscientious effort to avoid initiating such skirmishes to give outside observers the impression that the South Koreans were the ones engaging in such aggressive actions. The question as to who exactly initiated hostilities in the early morning of June 25th remains an open question, with each side laying the blame squarely on the other. At least one UN observer, an Australian army colonel named James Peach, speculated that the fault lay with Paik In-yup, commander of the 17th Regimental Combat Team of the ROK Army. According to Peach, Paik had a reputation as an energetic and trigger-happy officer. When the North Korean forces began to amass on the border, Peach believes that Commander Paik may have given the order to launch a preemptive strike. Even if Paik was responsible for this action, there is no evidence to suggest that he knew that he was firing the opening shots of the all-out war on the North that Kim Il-sung had warned his soldiers of mere weeks earlier. Whatever the truth of the matter is, this seemingly unremarkable border skirmish at Ongjin was followed soon by a six-pronged offensive by the KPA along the entire length of the 38th parallel. ROK Army Colonel Paik Son-yup, who was present for the initial battles of the war, later recalled the bravery of the ROK soldiers in the face of overwhelming tactical superiority. 
Acting without orders from their officers, a number of them broke into suicide team and charged the T-34 tanks, clutching grenades and other explosives. They clambered up onto the monsters before setting off the charges. End quote. The ROK army lacked proper anti-tank weapons, and the futility of these suicide attacks, described above, quickly led to a drop in morale. South Korean troops fled from the incoming T-34 tanks in a terrible panic. Even the mere mention of the word tank was enough to paralyze some soldiers with fear. Entire ROK army units either defected or fled in disarray before the rapid advance of the enemy. The 2nd Division, hastily sent up from the south to defend the strategically critical city of Ujeongbu, just north of Seoul, immediately broke and fled. The South Korean capital was now in jeopardy. In Pyongyang, the outbreak of the war was announced over loudspeakers to crowds of citizens. Quote, Early in the morning of June 25, 1950, troops of the so-called Army of National Defense of the puppet government of South Korea launched a surprise attack on the territory of North Korea along the 38th parallel. At the present moment, the security forces of the Democratic People's Republic are stubbornly resisting the enemy. End quote. Only the highest echelons of the army and the Communist Party leadership knew the truth of the matter, that this invasion had been meticulously planned over the past few days. Meanwhile, in Seoul, the government radio station broadcast its reassurances to listeners that, quote, there is little cause for concern. The 100,000 strong Republic of Korea armed forces are sound and intact, end quote. While urging the populace to remain calm, President Ri, his wife Francesca, and the presidential cabinet were making preparations to flee the capital as early as the evening of June 25th. News of Ri's flight from Seoul induced the citizens of the city to panic. Bill Shin, a North Korea-born journalist reporting for the Associated Press, described the chaotic scene in Seoul on June 27th, two days after the outbreak of war. Quote, Many who hear of the flight of the president fall into a deeper panic, and the streets teem with people laden with their belongings, converging on the Han River Bridge, on Yongdongpo on the opposite bank, and then on to the road south. With the ROK army reinforcements still rolling in from the south on trains, trucks, and buses, the streets around the bridge and Seoul Station are tied up in chaotic knots of humanity. North Korean planes, meanwhile, are dropping leaflets demanding surrender. End quote. It was early in the evening in Washington, D.C. when the first reports of the morning's events in Korea began to reach the U.S. government. At the time, many of the top American officials, including President Truman and Secretary of State Dean Acheson, were out of town. In these crucial early days of the war, it was Acheson, rather than Truman, who dominated the American government's decision-making process. That very day, before Truman even had time to return to Washington, Acheson had already requested an emergency session of the United Nations. At an emergency meeting of the cabinet the following day, Acheson argued for increased military aid to the ROK for the use of the U.S. Air Force to facilitate the evacuation of American citizens from the South and for the repositioning of the 7th Fleet to the Taiwan Strait, lest the PRC attempt to attack Taiwan while the Americans were distracted. Direct American military intervention in the conflict was not discussed because the Americans were convinced of the notion that the ROK army was capable of holding their own for the time being. That day, the American ambassador to South Korea, John Muccio, telegraphed Washington, quote, The Korean defense forces are taking up prepared positions to resist northern aggression. There is no reason for alarm, end quote. The Joint Chiefs of Staff remained hesitant to commit troops to Korea, as they doubted that the U.S. Army had the numbers to put up effective resistance to the North Koreans, 
let alone the Soviets or Chinese, should either party choose to intervene. From his headquarters in Tokyo, Japan, General Douglas MacArthur also expressed his reluctance towards the idea of a U.S. intervention, stating that, quote, Anyone advocating for a U.S. challenge to communist power on the Asian mainland should have his head examined, end quote. The faith that the Americans had placed in the ROK army was very much misplaced. The South Korean forces lacked much of the material they needed to put up effective resistance, including tanks, heavy artillery, and fighter aircraft. Morale only continued to plummet, and more and more ROK units either mutinied or fled instead of fighting. By June 28th, only three days after the initial attack, the ROK army could only account for 22,000 men of the 100,000-strong army that they claimed to possess. The rest had been killed, captured, wounded, or were otherwise missing. The day before, Ambassador Muccio ordered a full evacuation of American civilians from Seoul. Most found passage out of the city aboard a Norwegian freighter bound for Japan, but the masses of Korean civilians were not so lucky. Clutching their belongings close, the residents of Seoul used any method of transportation at their disposal to flee the city. Most did so on foot, but there were large numbers of ox carts and bicycles in the crowds, as well as precious few automobiles. The bridge over the Han River offered refugees the most direct escape routes south from the city, so naturally people crowded the bridge in their haste to escape. An American journalist named Kay's Beach later recalled the events that transpired there around 2.30 in the morning of June 28th. Quote, We sat in the jeep waiting. Then it seemed as if the whole world had exploded in front of us. I remember a burst of orange flame. Silhouetted against the flame was a truckload of Korean soldiers. The truck lifted into the air. I fled our own jeep in motion backwards. Luckily for us, that truck had shielded us from the worst of the blast. All of the soldiers on the truck were dead, their bodies strewn haphazardly across the ground. End quote. In a last-ditch ploy to prevent the enemy from taking Seoul, South Korean forces had, without warning, detonated 3,600 pounds of TNT on the Han River Bridge. Over 800 refugees and retreating soldiers were killed either in the initial blast or drowned in the river below. The man responsible for giving the order was Colonel Choi Chang-sik, who was executed for this a couple months later. Later on, it was revealed that his orders had come from higher up, specifically from the ROK Army's chief of staff, Che Byung-duk, known colloquially as Fat Che. Fat Che would never face the consequences of this action, as he was killed during an ambush a month later. It is also worth noting that the destruction of the Han River Bridge did not prevent the KPA from taking Seoul later that day. On June 27th, a team of American military officers sent by General MacArthur to assess the situation in Korea arrived at the city of Suwon, to which President Rhee and his officials had relocated. They were shocked at the state of confusion and disarray. The head of this team, General John Church, sent a telegraph to Tokyo informing them that, quote, it will be necessary to employ American ground forces to re-establish ROK positions at the 38th parallel and to recapture Seoul, end quote. MacArthur himself flew out to Suwon the next morning to see for himself. After discussing the current state of the situation with his officers, he quickly reached their same conclusion. That evening, he sent the following message along to Washington, D.C., quote, the only assurance for holding the present line and the ability to regain later the lost ground is through the introduction of United States ground combat forces into the Korean battle area. Unless provision is made for the full utilization of the Army, Navy, Air Team in this shattered area, our mission will be needlessly costly in life, money, and prestige. At worst, it might even be doomed. End quote. 
By the time MacArthur's message had reached its destination, President Truman had already made the decision to intervene. That same day, Truman had held a meeting with the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, and the Joint Chiefs of Staff, along with various congressional leaders. He told them that he had authorized the use of the U.S. Navy and Air Force in Korea. That same day, a resolution was passed in the United Nations authorizing the use of force to halt North Korean aggression. Three days later, Truman made the decision to authorize the deployment of U.S. ground forces as well. For the most part, the American public stood behind the president, saying that he, quote, had demonstrated decisiveness in making such a bold and courageous decision, end quote. Still, there was some degree of uncertainty as to the nature of this conflict. Congress had not issued a formal declaration of war. On June 30th, when asked if the United States was at war, Truman replied that it would be more appropriate to characterize the conflict not as a war, but as a police action. This euphemism, police action, served to downplay the severity of the situation in these crucial early days. The Americans went into Korea under the assumption that they were going to score a quick and easy victory over the enemy. Their enemy was a practically unknown entity, but many Americans remained confident that they would break ranks and flee at the mere sight of them. As one army lieutenant later recalled, quote, We thought they'd back off as soon as they saw American uniforms. I regarded the episode as an adventure that would probably last only a few days, end quote. The first American Army Division to arrive in Korea was the 24th Infantry Division, simply because it was closest in terms of geography. The division was woefully unprepared for the situation that awaited them in Korea. For one, this division was only at two-thirds of its full strength. Very few of the soldiers had any combat experience to speak of, and their training was, for the most part, inadequate. Moreover, their equipment was in poor shape, and their anti-tank weaponry proved ineffective against the KPA's T-34 tanks. The division arrived at the city of Daejeon, 140 kilometers south of Seoul, on July 2nd. They were greeted by General William Dean, who assured the men that all they needed was, quote, a few Americans who will not run from tanks, end quote. Meanwhile, the North Koreans were riding high on their success, having captured Seoul three days prior. Kim Il-sung had previously told Son that he believed the war could be won in a matter of three days. Indeed, they had managed to capture the enemy capital in that amount of time but the war was still far from over. The Rhee government had not yet capitulated, and moreover, the large-scale partisan uprising in the South that the entire KPA strategy had been premised on had failed to materialize. Pak Hon-young, now serving as the DPRK's vice premier and foreign minister, had reassured Kim that 200,000 underground members of the formerly banned South Korean Workers' Party would surely rise in armed rebellion to assist the North Koreans, but it seems that Pak had gravely underestimated Syngman Rhee's ability to engage in political repression. But more on that later. As KPA General Yu Song Chol later recalled, quote, We realized that our war scenario was flawed from its basic conception. End quote. As encouraging as the KPA's capture of Seoul had been, the offensive further southwards was beginning to run into difficulties. The main route of attack followed the main road south from Seoul, making the city of Daejeon the next major target. The KPA advanced on the city, but the ROK army put up stubborn resistance. The KPA was quickly losing momentum. On June 28th, Ambassador Shtikov informed Stalin that the KPA was in desperate need of more Soviet military advisors if the invasion was to prove successful. About a week later, Kim Il-sung appealed to Stalin personally for more military advisors. Quote, Being confident of your desire to assist the Korean people to rid themselves of the American imperialists, 
I am obliged to appeal to you with the request to allow the use of 25 to 35 more Soviet advisors in the staff of the front of the Korean army, since the national military cadres have not yet sufficiently mastered the art of commanding modern troops, end quote. Kim told the Soviet ambassador that without the assistance of his government, the invasion was doomed to failure. Shtikov later recalled that he had never seen Kim so distraught. The Americans deduced the invasion route that the KPA was taking, and reasoned that the best place to put up resistance was the village of Osan, 25 miles south of Seoul. The Americans took up positions near the village and awaited the advancing KPA force there. On the morning of July 5th, the Americans spotted a column of 30 T-34 tanks advancing on their position. Confidently, they fired their bazookas at the tanks, but to no avail. Their heavy artillery was more effective against them, but it was little use. The KPA tanks quickly overran the Americans' positions and sent them fleeing, leaving behind most of their weapons and their dead and wounded comrades behind them. All told, the Americans suffered 150 casualties at the Battle of Osan. This defeat came as a shock to the Americans who, again, had come in expecting a quick and easy victory. Now they discovered that they had underestimated the Koreans at their own peril. When the war had first broken out, MacArthur had literally boasted that he could handle the North Koreans with one hand tied behind his back. Now, he was frantically cabling Washington, D.C. for more reinforcements, stating, quote, The KPA is operating under excellent top-level guidance and has demonstrated superior command of strategic and tactical principles, end quote. What exactly had accounted for the American supreme overconfidence? For one, there was a general complacency among American military leaders in the wake of their victory in World War II. Generals like MacArthur believed that the U.S. armed forces were capable of taking on practically any challenge that the post-war world could pose to them. Another factor was the way the conflict was framed by American political leaders. Specifically, Truman's preferred description of the conflict as being a police action no doubt led many to believe that their time in Korea would be short and relatively easy. There was also the fact that the Americans were facing a practically unknown entity. Before the war had broken out, Few Americans had even heard of Korea, let alone possessed any knowledge about conditions on the ground there. Racism also played a large psychological role. Coming from an officially segregated society, most Americans believed that the Koreans were a race inferior to their own. Remarkably, the same racial prejudices that led the Americans to initially underestimate the fighting capacity of the Koreans also led them to overestimate them in other respects. In an opinion piece written three weeks after the beginning of the war, New York Times columnist Hanson Baldwin wrote, quote, We are facing an army of barbarians in Korea, but they are barbarians as trained, as relentless, as reckless of life, and as skilled in the tactics of the kind of war that they fight as the hordes of Genghis Khan. They have taken a leaf from the Nazi book of Blitzkrieg and are employing all the weapons of fear and terror, end quote. In another article written a few days later, Baldwin went on to write, quote, To the Korean, life is cheap. Behind him stand the hordes of Asia. Ahead of him lies the hope of loot. What else brings him shrieking on? What else explains his fanatical determination? End quote. Baldwin's proposed solution to the Korean problem is just as remarkable as his previous comments. Quote, In their extensive war against Russian partisans, the Germans found that the only way to answer guerrillas was to win friends and influence people among the civilian population. The actual pacification of the country means just that, a pacification like that in Ukraine, end quote. Racist opinions of the Korean people did not apply strictly to their enemies, but also to their ostensible allies. 
the soldiers of the ROK army. In general, American soldiers thought of their South Korean counterparts as cowards, incapable of fighting effectively. As one American army officer put it, quote, The South Koreans and North Koreans are identical. Why, then, do the North Koreans fight like tigers, and the South Koreans run like sheep? End quote. For the first two years of the war, the Americans were generally of the opinion that the South Koreans did no fighting worthy of the name, and were only really capable of breaking ranks and fleeing. However, as Jaeger puts it, quote, Much has been made of the ROK Army's poor performance, but this ignores the heroic efforts made to successfully rebuild the ROK Army on the run. The South Koreans were able, against great odds, to place their shattered forces back together, while fighting a delaying action without collapsing entirely, despite their inferiority in arms, numbers, equipment, and training." End quote. However, at the time, the Americans did not seem to appreciate this fact. As one South Korean veteran later remembered, quote, "...most Americans had an ingrained prejudice against Koreans that made any kind of empathy or understanding difficult. They hated Koreans by reflex action." End quote. By July 14th, the Americans were attempting to hold the city of Daejeon against the KPA to no avail. After several days of intense urban warfare, the KPA took the city and continued their southward offensive. During the Battle of Daejeon, American General William F. Dean was taken prisoner by the KPA and would remain in North Korean custody until the end of the war. Elsewhere in the country, the KPA's advance met with unexpectedly stiff resistance from the 6th Division of the ROK Army at the city of Chuncheon about 30 miles northeast of Seoul. The 6th Division's defense of Chuncheon delayed the KPA's invasion plans by about a week, buying the Americans crucial time to organize a more proper defense. By early August, the Americans had succeeded in establishing a defensive perimeter around the all-important city of Busan, South Korea's second-largest city and the final destination on the KPA's invasion route. The Busan perimeter, as this defensive line would come to be known, centered on the cities of Daegu, Masan, and Pohang, with the Nakdong River forming a natural defensive boundary. By September 8th, the Americans had succeeded in transporting all combat-ready army divisions in Asia to Korea. Some were sent to defend the Busan perimeter, but most were being held in reserve for a more audacious offensive plan being masterminded by MacArthur. In late August, meanwhile, the KPA launched a major offensive, attacking American forces on three different fronts along the perimeter. By the end of the month, KPA forces had successfully crossed the Nakdong River, a development that was quite startling to the Americans and South Koreans. As one American officer wrote was, quote, the most dangerous since the perimeter had been established, end quote. The army headquarters at Daegu was deemed unsafe and relocated to Busan itself. By this point, American casualties had reached as high as 20,000. By September 10th, the American forces had just barely managed to hold off the KPA offensive and were beginning to push back. A day prior, Kim Il-sung had announced that, quote, the war has reached an extremely harsh and decisive stage, end quote. Unbeknownst to him, an entirely unexpected development was about to change the entire course of the war and would put the North Koreans on the back foot, the Battle of Incheon. But since this episode has gone on for quite long enough, you'll have to wait for the next episode in two weeks to hear what happens next. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or anything else you'd like for me to address, you can always email me at perspectivesinhistorypod at gmail.com. Alternatively, it is possible to reach me via Twitter or Facebook, links to both of which can be found in this episode's description. If you've enjoyed this series so far and would like to help support the show, please consider subscribing to the show's Patreon page, 
or by purchasing some used books from me on eBay. It would also be immensely helpful if you left a favorable review for the show on whichever podcast listening platform you prefer to use. Anyway, that should just about do it for now. This has been the Perspectives in History podcast. Thank you for listening as always. I'm your host, Will O'Connor, signing off.